Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. Today's topic is the most controversial and divisive topic to grip corporate life in a generation. Of course, I'm talking about return to office for the professional worker. That is those workers sitting behind desks staring at computer screens. It's putting at odds the highest levels of corporations against most everyone else. It comes up constantly, work from home, return to office, hybrid work, remote work. The idea is all about working outside of a traditional office space. Before we start, I want to run down some of the common arguments for and against people back into the office. And then I'll go over some of what the leaders of corporations are saying today. The basic arguments for return to office. Number one, collaboration and creativity. That is, innovation is based on in-person relationships, culture and mentorship, a company culture, community, and employees' sense of belonging is an important element of a functioning company, and this requires in-person interactions. And number three, productivity. That is, you work harder and more effectively in an office setting. Arguments against return to office. Work-life balance makes us more productive. That is, people have learned to be more productive at home. In fact, they are more fulfilled while working from home, and they are more productive and innovative when they have this balance. Flexibility, thanks to technology advancements, we can't work effectively from anywhere. Health and safety, you just can't catch COVID from a coworker or anything else for that matter, which again makes us more productive. And talent, you can hire employees from anywhere if you don't adhere strictly to an office environment. So let me walk through some of the comments from corporate leaders. First, those most squarely against working from home. The CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, has said he believes the office is essential for corporate and culture productivity. He's mandated all his employees at Goldman Sachs to return to the office five days a week. Jeff Bezos, still a big part of Amazon, although not currently the CEO, he believes in the importance of in-person serendipitous collisions. He wants employees back in the office at least three days a week. The CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, has said he believes the office is essential for collaboration and innovation. He wants Salesforce employees to be in the office at least two days a week. And my favorite, of course, Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla, remote work is morally wrong. The laptop class is living in la-la land. We need to see you all in the office, preferably 40 hours a week minimum. If you don't show up, we're assuming you've resigned. Google, Sundai Pichai, he believes in hybrid work model. He wants Google employees to be able to choose the best way to work for them. But he, again, also sees a future where employees work in the office three days a week with the flexibility to work remotely four weeks a year. Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, he believes in a flexible work model where employees can work from the office or from home, depending on their preferences. He wants employees to be able to work where they are most productive. And Meta, formerly Facebook, we're confident people can make a meaningful impact from both the office and at home, but they too are now expecting employees to come into the office at least three days a week. Okay, Denny, that's my intro. So what do you think? I think that perhaps with one exception in that list you quoted, these people probably have good points, but I think you need to dig deeper to get to the facts around this issue. So I think discounting Elon Musk's rather radical stand, uh, everyone else, I, I believe I can understand their position. The, the one thing that I, I think we should dispense with right away is that according to Mr. Musk, if you don't show up, you're fired. And the fact that if you're not in the office, you're just not part of the program. 
program that you're morally bankrupt, I think is a, a bit of a dichotomy because he's trying to equate different kinds of jobs that really don't match. You mentioned early on in your introduction how this really applies mostly to jobs that can be done remotely from computers. And Elon even refers to those of us who have done this as the laptop class. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we understand there are some jobs you can't work remotely. Everybody knows that. Forget about those. We're only talking about that segment of society that has the ability to do their work from anywhere. And that's typically engineering. There's a lot of customer service positions, a number of things that don't work. But if you're a checker at the local grocery store, obviously this topic is of no interest to you whatsoever. So having said that, I think that one of the main things that we have to consider here is that not everyone can work remote because they're just not cut out to do it. So when I listen to the comments of some of the CEOs, particularly the Goldman Sachs comment that you've got to be here five days a week, that's the only way it will work, I think is a little short-sighted because there are people who in fact do better work when they're not constantly surrounded by distractions and other people. There are other people who you kind of have to stay on top of them to gain that productivity. The first slice of this conversation needs to be that there is some subset of us, meaning technical workers, who are as good as or better when we're not in an office environment. You bring up job class generally, whether it's engineering or finance or accounting marketing, those types of jobs that lend themselves to sitting often by yourself in front of a screen or in a meeting. And then you also talk about depends on the individual. I think that's a good insight. It yeah. very much depends on the individual. So I have personal experience with this, having managed teams in which there were remote. I've had people that were outstanding at it and I've had people that just did not work. And I don't know that you and I can dig into the, the psychology of what makes this happen. But what I do know is you can tell the difference very quickly for people who are adept at this and, and people who are not. So one of the things that I think we should consider is that some of these blanket statements from the CEOs that says everyone will or everyone must seems to overlook that subtlety. Or maybe it's not so subtle. Maybe it's something that when you're a line manager and you're actually dealing with these folks, you can tell right away. Perhaps the key to all of this is you need to have people in those management positions who are hiring folks who have the ability to be able to perceive, perhaps during the interview process, but more likely once you've actually got these folks in place, you can tell fairly quickly who's good at it and who's not. And those that are good at it are outstanding. And those that are successful at it are the ones that fit into this mold that perhaps we'll try to define having the right personality, the right motivation, whatever it is that makes them work. I think even in the office, not all employees are equally productive. Is it the same employees that aren't productive at the office? Are those the same ones that aren't productive at home? Are we really talking about just sort of a, a set of employees that are in the wrong job or for whatever reason can't be productive on their teams? Well, that's an interesting question because what it comes down to is some sort of internal motivation that some people have. And it could be as simple as the folks that you're referring to in the office who are not that great are easily distracted. And they may, in fact, once you send them at home and have them work from their own little space, they might be better because there are fewer distractions. And as you kind of alluded to in some of your earlier comments, there's a lot of interaction that takes place in offices. And there seems to be some group of folks that think that's a big part of success. Well, again, maybe it is for some and not for others. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to tease out those people that work best when they're uninterrupted. And some of that has to do with the kind of work that they do. 
surely some of it has to do with individual personality. I think a blanket statement to either side is probably a mistake of saying everybody's in the office or nobody's in the office. You kind of miss the point, the subtlety of all this. And one of the beautiful things about this remote capability is that, as you mentioned, you can find folks anywhere on the planet, which means you can get the most talented people to do the kind of work that you want them to do. The trick is finding and understanding how to identify them. So I think what we're seeing is the Microsoft has it right. Work where they are most productive is one of the things they're saying currently. We'll see whether or not they actually follow through on this. Hopefully, people recognize where they're most productive. But let's talk about distractions. Some of the CEOs are saying you have more distractions at home. And you touched on this a little earlier. What's your experience with homework versus in-office work when it comes to distractions? I think it comes down to the same set of criteria that we're talking about for anyone, and that is how well do they focus on a task? What's their sort of personal approach to work? What I know for sure is that if I'm in an office and I'm working in a cubicle and there's 30 people around me and there are conversations taking place, some people mm-hmm. are on the phone, people are walking by, they, they walk in and ask you questions. You're going to get distracted, guaranteed. On the other hand, if you have a private space at home or anywhere that you can find where you can eliminate those distractions so you can really focus, and that is appropriate for the kind of work you're doing, I think most people will do better in that circumstance. On the other hand, if your work at home space is the kitchen table and you've got two preschoolers running around and a dog and a cat, odds are, yeah, it's not going to work out so well. So maybe there's that other thing which has to do with the space in which you do this remote work, plus the personal settings around. I've worked personally with people where I see the kids and the dogs running around in the background. It's like it doesn't bother them a bit. They've got the ability to zero in on things and really focus. Those people would probably also do just fine in a busy office because they're somehow able to isolate what they're paying attention to and make sure that it is the thing that that you want them to pay attention to. Right. It's sort of funny when you go back into the office or when I go back into the office now, and there's always a lack of conference rooms. Everybody always wants to meet in person. You want to have that interaction in person, or at least that was sort of the default or used to be. But so often now, even when you go into the office and you sit at your desk, put on your headphones and take the meeting as if you were sitting at home. Why? Because (laughs) it's infuriating to try to find an open conference room where the meeting gets pushed a half hour and now you've lost your conference room or for whatever reason, it's just easier. And I will add that meetings start on time when they're online. There's always a commute time for people moving from one conference room to the other. I think that's a good point, Glenn, because uh, I personally can think of 10,000 times when I've been in a meeting that ends at 11, but I have a meeting that starts at 11, traveling down the hallway, and you're interrupted constantly by people you run into. You get there at 11.10, but you're not the only one that gets there at 11.10. Half of the folks attending are late. I've had this conversation many times with people that there should be some sort of an unwritten rule for meetings that there's a a 10-minute pass period. Just like when you were in school, classes didn't start on the hour. There was always a 10 or 15-minute space in order for you to get from one building to the next. But that does not seem to exist. Now, the other side of that is if I'm sitting at home and my meeting goes from 10 to 11, click, I sign off, click, I sign off. So Mm -hmm. you're very right. It's it's more effective. Absolutely. Let's talk about culture. 
That's the other thing that CEOs think that they're improving by having people in the office. That might be true. Having people face-to-face interacting creates some kind of culture, maybe more quickly or more uh, evident than being remote. What do you think about when you think about culture in an office and the places you've worked? This is one of those topics that I kind of alluded to earlier that I think the points are correct on both sides. I think this is a valid point. And there are a number of places that I have worked where that is a very important part of it. I think some of it might depend on where you are in the process of creating this company. Take the example of a a startup where you've got some sort of innovative idea that's kind of just a germ of a thought, but you start getting together with people and you're bouncing these ideas around and that eventually becomes a full-fledged concept that you can work on. Trying to do that remote is going to be very different. I give you an unrelated, but maybe a good example of why I think this is true. And it has to do with music. As you know, I'm a big fan of playing music. And a lot of times I sit in the same room I'm in right now and play my guitar by myself, perhaps to some sort of a jam track on YouTube. But then when I get together with other musicians, it's like a completely different experience. There's some sort of back and forth feedback that takes place. And that's the same thing I think that happens when you're particularly, as I said, in the early stages of coming up with an idea. It's that interaction between people. I don't think it's quite as effective when you're online, and I can't really explain why that is. What I do know is there is this sort of magic thing that happens when you get two or three or a half a dozen people that are all kind of thinking the same thing, and you're in this same physical space. It feels like it generates some sort of I don't know what it is, psychic energy or something that enables ideas to to just sort of build. So I think that's actually a very good point in favor of this, that there are probably times you should all get together. One last thought on this is that even in those circumstances where you have a fully remote business, they still do gather people together for some of these strategic sessions. So everybody mm-hmm. flies into the same town and they meet, maybe they spend a day or two or a week. And they do all that in sort of this concentrated fashion. Mm-hmm. And then everyone returns to their remote spots. The positive that I see out of that is that's a very focused, intentional event. And a lot of the sort of offhanded creative things just tend to happen when you meet somebody in the hall and say, hey, what about this idea that we were talking about? 10-minute conversation and away you go. And that, that germ of an idea and those small interactions probably end up taking a little longer to develop. Then when you shove everybody into the same space and say, this is what we're going to talk. Okay. So that's the positive side, that psychic energy, the synergy, the magic that happens when people are gelling together in the same space. Now let's talk about the other side of it, perhaps in environments where you don't need people to create magic every single day, that there is just sort of work to be done. Is there the potential for negative aspects to culture when you're in the office forcing people five days a week to be sitting doing work that isn't collaborative, that isn't creative, and forcing them to interact in a way that maybe they'd prefer not to? I think that both of these positions that you're pointing out are, are true in some circumstances. So maybe what we're really looking for is that balancing act. And as you mentioned a few moments ago, maybe Microsoft's got it right. Let's do what works. I can certainly think of instances where I did not want to be in an office with several hundred other people milling about, both because of the distractions, the things that they say. And we all know that there are circumstances where perhaps you're trying to promote yourself or an idea, you're trying to make up for some horrendous mistake that you made. 
And often that comes at the expense of others. And it could be as simple as, I, I give you an example. I, I worked for a, a long time with a biotech company and there were a couple of folks that were team leaders who seemed to think that the way to get your idea across is simply start talking and not stop. You would go to a meeting and one, it was awful if they were both in there, but they would start talking and there was no chance to insert anything. It was a very non-productive, very kind of single focused direction. And these people tended to push their ideas. One of the odd benefits of being online is that it's a little easier to pause. I think that people don't feel that same pressure to push, mm. push, push. It feels like you're right. There, There is a difference. There's a, a little bit more antagonism. There's more opportunity for people to try and promote themselves and, and their own ideas in the office setting. Yeah, I wonder if there is more discrimination because there's so much else happening in an office that could impact folks. And I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. Everything from gender to appearance to your mannerisms. And not that you don't have video working from home, but it's not as intense. People say you're, you're missing something when you're having a meeting and you're not in person. But I, I would also add, well, you're missing a lot of things that aren't important. Or unpleasant. <laughs> people rolling their eyes or people, you know, clearly dissing you for whatever reason, often inappropriate reasons. I think you're right there. That's one of those things that, again, you can probably find and, and think of most kinds of examples that would back that up. Anytime you get two people together, just like you and I, there's going to be the possibility of saying something that's upsetting. I may say something where you're going, the guy's an idiot and you don't realize it. But it's sort of magnified when you have that kind of more intense activity when you're physically sitting in the room. But I still say the, the big distraction for being in the office is just that kind of the, the whole Brownian movement thing where there's just this constant motion. There's everything moving. There's noise. There's distractions. There's activity, some intentional, some not. It's more likely that people are going to exhibit more negative behavior when they're in an environment like that than when you're remote. It might just be because it's very different to be interacting with someone personally, physically, and interacting with someone who's an image on the screen, or maybe not even there. Maybe it's just this disembodied voice. And I think it's easier to be more comfortable in those environments yeah. and to feel a little less stressed. That's a great point. I think some people are more comfortable being able to just focus on words and not on everything else that goes on in a in a meeting. Well, let's talk about this idea of apprenticeship. Some of the CEOs are saying that. I know David Solomon at Goldman Sachs has said that his business was an apprenticeship kind of business where new talent coming in needed to be around others through some kind of osmosis to learn their jobs. I had the opportunity to have coffee with uh, someone much younger than myself, not new to the workforce, but relatively new. This topic, of course, came up when I had mentioned this idea and he had said, uh, which I thought was kind of insightful, uh, why don't you ask the people if they think that's important or if even that works. And I had to think back to early in my career, wondering, was it ever effective for me to be in the office, even sitting right next to someone who supposedly was more experienced? Is that how I learned? And I had to admit, for me personally, it never worked. The only thing that worked was scheduled, forced interactions where I had to say, hey, I need to understand how this works, or I need to understand something about the way you work. This idea that somehow it just happens because you're in the office and these serendipitous collisions, as Jeff Bezos had mentioned, will just happen, I think is false. What do you think? Probably the reason he says they're serendipitous is it's just pure accident. 
we're talking about a specific kind of work. If I were trying to become a carpenter, I think mm -hmm. an apprenticeship would be a good thing so, because there's there's all of that physical activity. There's the the need to see and do in order to learn how to do things with wood, how to build a house, how to pour concrete. A lot of jobs, I think that is absolutely critical that that's the only way you do it. If I go back to that music axiom that I was talking about earlier, I think it's true there that it helps to be with somebody who's much better than you that shows you. The kind of work that we're talking about, I do not believe is conducive to providing that sort of mentorship and apprenticeship. And I, I don't think that's how you learn it. Most of the technological fields are just kind of stick your nose in there and start poking around. There are, however, some methodologies that can be learned, but they don't have to be done in person. My experience is that all of these things happen just fine online. It really falls to the mentor, not the mentee, to make sure that that takes place. And it is hand in hand with what I talked about earlier. If you're going to put people in a position of working remote, you have to understand who they are and how to identify them. And the Part of the way that works is I've got all this information. I know how to do these things. I've put this person on a team that I'm responsible for. I need to have frequent interaction with them. It doesn't matter if they're sitting at a desk next to me. a screen is just fine. But maybe I review the things they do, and then they go do some more, and then I review. When you talk about Goldman Sachs, I don't necessarily know what kind of work the CEO is referring to where he has this belief. It might also be an appropriate time for me to, to say something about the whole idea of these CEOs making these declarations. I don't know what they're basing it. I don't know mm -hmm. if they're saying this because this is the way I feel or if they're saying it because I feel like I need to have complete control over these people. I need to be here where I can watch them the entire time they're working. I don't know what it is. What I do know is that there have been some supposed scientific studies that have tried to provide some sort of detail about what is right and what is wrong. And I read those and I think, well, this is, it's nonsense because there are too many variables for you to put these simplistic results out and say, uh, we get an 80% increase in productivity with people that sit at the desk in an office eight hours a day. Who are they? What kind of work are they doing? More importantly, who are they doing it for? And how effective is that manager of theirs at making sure that they're getting mentored, that they're getting the kinds of reviews and the kind of training? I think there's just too many variables in this. All of these ideas, as I said, I believe are valid. I think everybody has a point, but I have yet to see a way that you can put this in a box and say, here are the rules, here's what works each and every time. Now, you point out some important concepts, control, trust, and just being a good manager. There's this fear of loss of control that people won't be doing their jobs unless they're sitting being watched and they're not trusting them obviously as a result of that. And then the basic concept of a good manager, get the most out of their employees under any circumstances, is what will get you productive employees. And at core of that is being flexible. Yes, this comes back to the, as our Microsoft guy said, we're going to do what works best. To me, that's the most insightful perspective on all of this, rather than saying, as they pound on the table, everybody will be in the office three days a week because this is what's going to happen. I think that misses the point entirely. Now, the other side of this is I know plenty of people that like to work in the office. They they like the interaction. They like leaving the house in the morning and going to the office and having that connection with people. Well, I think, okay, 
let them do that. The real key is they got to be good at what they do. It always comes back to, I believe, the person that is their line manager. They've got to be able to identify the best people to do the best quality of work and then give them the environment in which they can do it. A blanket statement of everyone or all or always or every day, I just don't think it works. If there is any kind of a benefit to the COVID experience, I think it's that it pushed this whole concept across the line. And whereas there used to be a few companies that were remote, and there were many that were very successful, fully remote companies, now it sort of affects every company that's into it, the types of work that you pointed out earlier for this. So it's now up to us as managers to figure out how do I identify the people that can do this and the people that can't and make sure that I put those individuals in the most productive setting for them. Well, we haven't talked much about individual happiness that comes from remote work. Happiness is interesting. In fact, I want to take it a little bit different direction. First of all, let's recognize that these decisions about in-office remote are being made at the very top of the organization. It's not being delegated. It is the CEO, the very top of the leadership team. And what is motivating them to make these decisions? Let's remember, it's kind of cool to be a CEO. When you are walking into a building, everyone knows who you are. When you're walking into the elevator, there's a bit of deference. When you walk into your office, there's an exec admin ready to support you. When you walk into a meeting, people stop. They stop talking. They turn to you. I think there's a lot of ego stroking that happens for a CEO when they're in an office, when they're experiencing that sort of power that comes with their position, their corner office. They don't have a meeting room problem. They've always got other people finding the right meeting rooms, setting up the meetings, coordinating their day. They just have it easy compared to the average office worker who's dealing with all kinds of other distractions, including things that they shouldn't have to deal with. Do you think that plays a role in the decisions they're making with regard to return to office? You know, I listen to you make that description. I think, yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. I spent some time in the Navy in my youth, and we used to always say rank has its privilege. Mm. That's very true. I mean, you're the boss. I think you should get all those things because you're also responsible for everything. So when stuff goes wrong, uh, it's eventually going to land on your head. It's hard for me to imagine that most mortals would not suffer from this complex of thinking that. I am I am the ultimate supreme leader. And maybe not at first. Maybe so if they promote me to CEO of a company, I would like to think that I'd be a very open-minded, reasonable person, but I don't know how long that would last until I decided only I know best. You will do as I say. I think you're exactly right. I, I think that there's a huge amount of ego. I think that it's necessary to, to get to those positions, to get to the C-suite level. I think you have to have Tremendous self-confidence, this awareness of who you are and the power that you wield. Yeah, I wonder if it's a case where they're making the decision for personal ego reasons and then justifying it through logical sounding reasons for culture or productivity when there's arguments on the other side that might even be stronger to suggest that you can have a more productive, a happier workforce, a more loyal workforce if you don't force them to work in your office setting. The two of the examples that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we were talking about the position that the Microsoft CEO is taking versus the position that the Tesla CEO is taking. Those are radically different. And 
both of those guys are in charge of significant corporations. Mm-hmm. A lot going on, a lot of money involved. They have sort of completely opposite perspectives of what needs to be done. It might be that if we really analyzed who they were, where they've come from, the kinds of things that they've done in their lives, that there would be some clues as to why they believe they alone know best, even though they have polar opposite perspectives on how this works. I think it's fair to say that ego is probably the driver more than anything else. And it's that, well, I'm the boss. I get to decide what happens. This is what I believe. And whether that belief is justified or whether that belief is supported by anyone else kind of doesn't matter because if I'm the boss, I get to call the shots. To me, that turns into a question then for the individual employee and that, do I want to work for this company that says this is what I must do? And if not, well, move on, right? But this is all very complex because, as I said, there's there's a million moving parts. And those moving parts are the individuals involved, all of whom have different values and different needs and different abilities. About one more complexity element to add to the mix here, and that is downtowns being deserted during the pandemic. I happen to live in the Seattle area, and Amazon must have 50 buildings in downtown Seattle. And during the pandemic, they weren't coming to the office. Do you think some of the push that's happening is coming from a political standpoint where mayors of cities are pushing the executives of major corporations to get the people back into downtown, to retake it from the homeless and support the businesses in the downtown area? I lived in the Seattle area for many years, so I'm fully aware of what you're referring to. I currently live in Bend, Oregon, a much smaller community with none of the traffic problems, but some of the same homeless problems. However, we don't have, in my community, any of the issues with vacant office buildings. It's rather quite the contrary. But I, I do think you have a valid point that there could be some serious political pressure if you're the mayor of Seattle or San Francisco. I mean, these towns are in the news constantly about how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of this that we didn't touch on is that it's entirely possible that economics are behind it. There are people who have significant investments in commercial real estate that are hurting right now because Mm -hmm. their buildings are vacant. And now there's discussion of how are we going to turn these empty offices into homes for the homeless? I mean, that's pretty dramatic stuff. I would not be surprised if there is an element of that in this as well. As I said, it's complex. This is just not a single level issue. It's a question of of control. It's a question of believing that I alone know what's going on. It's it's the question of politics. It's a question of money, of real estate investments. I wonder if uh, some of the companies that own their buildings, if they sort of feel this need to just utilize those spaces since they're continuing to pay the mortgage, so to speak. They are continuing to pay the mortgage. I have a a daughter who works for a company that I can never remember the name of. It's some sort of a cable communications company. And they had a situation where they had a significant office that they were paying a lease on, which was, you know, a tidy sum of money. COVID hits. Everybody goes remote because it was the kind of work that worked with people being remote. So then they were paying every month some number of thousands of dollars on this office. They let their lease expire and they've gone fully remote now. But they were faced with the same problem that I think a lot of companies are. And that's you've signed a five-year lease on a downtown Seattle office building at however many dollars a square foot. That's money out the door. 
And it would be easy to say, well, at least let's put our people in there. We're paying for it anyway. Let's, let's get them back in there. The thing you need to do is determine, do I really have to have those people in there? Do I have to absorb that expense or is it best to just let it go? And then the other side of that is you've got the owners of those buildings who are saying, yeah, you need to put people in here so we can rent this. To you. So it's kind of this domino effect of economics. And then that all backs up, as you correctly pointed out, to the leadership of the city because they're going to start getting pressure. Another thing you didn't talk about that maybe you'll want to get into is the effect that it has on the quality of life for traffic. My memories of living in Seattle are mostly of sitting in traffic on the freeway. And I suspect that during the pandemic, that was not as big a problem. It was great. Yeah. I used to work at Amazon. I don't anymore. But we certainly all noticed when the Amazonians were forced back into the office three days a week, everyone's commute went up. Even if you weren't going to downtown, probably doubled for many people. And it's a big issue. And I, I think we're touching on a lot of great things. And uh, it's it, it's apparent to me that this just isn't about the productivity of the workforce. There's a lot of other things that are coming into play here. And I'm not sure that we can do this in a single episode. It might deserve another deeper look at some of the psychological motivations like we touched on and some of the economic motivations of cities and of the top leaders of organizations and the political landscape. So I think we may need to have a, a second episode, Denny. I would like to touch on one last thing before. Before we go, this, we can make yeah. this quick. And that is the, uh, you mentioned this in your opening remarks, and that is the acquisition of talent everywhere. Mm -hmm. So one of the most positive aspects that I personally have encountered in remote employees is that I can recruit folks from anywhere on the planet. And I got to tell you, there's some incredibly smart people out there. But if you limit yourself to the folks that can make the commute, in your case, into downtown Seattle, you are missing out. I think that that is an enormously huge and important aspect of the remote work logic. It's just that you've got the availability to get the best people in the world to work for you. You know, and I'll support that. I, I As part of research for this, I was looking at job boards at uh, remote jobs versus not remote jobs. And you can see a job that is fully remote within hours of posting, there are hundreds and hundreds of applications. And looking at the opposite, even two weeks into a, a job posting, sometimes there's only a couple of dozen. So there is something to that that we should explore in the next installment. It's a topic that as recent as last night, I was at a neighbor's birthday party and I had a chat with a fellow and I mentioned this topic and it was like his eyes light up and he's got opinions. This affects a whole lot of people. And mm -hmm. I believe that it is a topic that is worth another dive. Appreciate you bringing this to the table. Absolutely. A lot of passion on both sides. Well, thank you, Danny. It's been excellent as always. And we will catch you at the next one. Excellent. Enjoy our conversation.